Welcome to this episode of the New Lines podcast. I'm your host, Rasha Ilas, and with us today are genocide experts Ur Ungar and Ansar Shahoud. We advise listener discretion on this one, as we'll be discussing a massacre with all its implications. For two years, Ur and Ansar investigated this massacre, which was carried out in 2013 by the Syrian regime. Chilling videos show dozens of civilians handcuffed and blindfolded as Syrian soldiers shot them one by one in cold blood. Ur and Ansar later discovered that the massacre had unfolded outside of Damascus in a district called Todamun. They found the perpetrators and interviewed them. Their investigation was published in late April in New Lines magazine. We're checking in with them today again to talk about the impact of this investigation. Ur and Ansar, welcome back to New Lines. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Agasha, for having us. Let's start by recapping briefly your investigation from the time that you were approached with the leaked videos. Tell us what unfolded after that. Well, um, in, uh, when we received uh, the video, uh, we basically started uh, started researching without any other context uh, this massacre from only from the footage itself. Um, and that took us in uh, particular directions, some of which were fruitful, others less so. Uh, but the real breakthrough was when uh, when Ansar found the perpetrator uh, on Facebook, uh, and then uh, well, we sent a friend request. The guy accepted, and then uh, the uh, the investigation took a really different turn because it started including the story of the perpetrator, um, and then uh, from there, it really it really grew. Ansar, you actually went undercover to solicit some response from the perpetrator. Tell us how you did that. When we start the investigation, we have been already working on undercover for two years. Um, as Anna, uh, the, the another personality. And uh, so we added perpetrators on Facebook. We observed the, them for a while and then uh, we talked to them. So um, when I added Amjad, that was like um, any other perpetrator. Amjad, Amjad being one of the perpetrators. Yes, he's one of the perpetrators I have interviewed uh, for the last uh, four, four years. When you built the persona of Anna on Facebook, you ensured that Anna would appear pro-Assad, maybe young and naive and researcher, living abroad, eager to learn, eager to interview Syrian military personnel. How did you build that? How did you put together the illusion of this persona so that it becomes convincing to perpetrators who are themselves military intelligence officers? Um, Anna is a product of, of research and also hard work. It's not uh, something come comes up in like in one year or like we studied Anna, like we studied the creators. We studied the environment of the pro-asset, um, pro-asset uh, criminals. So um, the creators. So we built Anna. Obviously, some profiles we knew from homes. So I have been living there. And also based on like dialogue with uh, other friends who have been like in touch with uh, pro-Assad militias and pro-Assad uh, kind of um, communities. And we took their advices 
uh, and we learn. So it was also built by learning. So when we talk to a perpetrator, we learn something new and Anna adapted this information. Uh, we studied Anna as we studied the perpetrators. We studied the ecosystem of the Syrian regime uh, perpetrators. So describe to us, Anna, then, what kind of person is she? What does she like? Where does she live? What does she aspire to be? What does she want? Anna was an Alawayar who studied in Holland and wanted to do research on and convey the, the voices of uh, pro-Assad to the Western uh, world. Anna also was for some time a Christian girl who was from the same neighborhood, but it happened that the last name of Anna um, sometimes is uh, like, um, can be um, can be Christian or like <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. uh, can be Alawite mm-hmm. girl. So Anna wasn't only Alawite, she was a minority girl who can adapt to the personality she is interviewing. Uh, mostly she is a middle class girl, well educated, from a family who, who was suffering from the war because of the opposition. So we built mm-hmm. such a narrative based on different stories and uh, from specific neighborhood of homes, uh, on homes which make the uh, the story uh, believable by the perpetrators. Um, how did Anna gain the trust of someone like Amjad? Patience and uh, also how to to make yourself introduce yourself in a way uh, trustworthy and apply apply to all the questions they have. Uh, don't hesitate. You smile. You accept. And I think the acceptance that. Um, somehow we can say the human side of these people that they have been experiencing something to to come to stage where they uh, where they kill, and I think uh, Anna to be able to convince Amjad uh, it was a result of three three years work on other perpetrators like the doctors. So when you you interview uh, intelligence, you will know that you suspect more. Um, more question, more doubts, and um, yeah. So you need to be calm, accept all their uh, their doubts and answer, and be prepared to their like attack on you or like doubts or suspicion of you. Yeah. Well, who do you mean by other perpetrators such as doctors? Um, before, uh, I think in two thousand and nineteen, two thousand and twenty. I have been interviewing senior doctors who worked on Assad uh, hospitals. They were accused of crimes like uh, Hospital 601, uh, Tishreen Hospital, or Homs Military Hospital. Some of them being uh, prosecuted in Germany, in German courts, is that who you're talking about? Some of them, but uh, I didn't interview the one who was abroad mm-hmm. uh, or in exile, but uh, the one inside, and they are still in their position. Uh, mm-hmm. Working on the hospital, so yeah. How long did you develop a rapport with Amjad? How long did you speak for? For about seven to eight months, he stopped talking to us, and uh, this year he he returned to ask some question. Anna is coming back to Syria or not? On and off, like about a year. Okay, just tell us, you know, walk us a little bit through these seven to eight months. First, you gain his trust, and then he starts to open up to you. What does he tell you when he's opening up to you, and why do you think he's even confiding in Anna? I mean, I say you, but I mean your fictitious 
online persona, Anna? For Amjad, when first he talked to us, it was like very short. He had some questions. Um, um, we, we answered him or was in the, in the room as well. And then we, he stopped talking to us and he returned after three months. And it was like in this gun interview where everyone like heard his voice uh, in his house um, at night talking and explaining his position and uh, what he did about his family, his experience, his view of the Syrian regime, of the NDF and uh, other, other issues. Uh, then we had like short talks. Uh, and wh- wait, wait, let me interject. What are his views of the Syrian regime and the NDF? I think he believes in the monopoly of violence of the state, and uh, that state can do everything, and there is no limit to the state power. So we believe in the institution, as he called himself, as one of the institution. The absolute power of the institution. Exactly. Okay, and then what else did he open up about? Of course, uh, when he confessed to the killing of civilians, he didn't say civilians, he said, I killed so many, I don't remember how many I killed. So Amjad has some guilt, uh, maybe not remorse, but I think it was a moment when he, he opened up uh, and then we kind of pressured him to talk about the videos. He denied this question. That's interesting. You say maybe he had some guilt, but not remorse. What's the difference? Um, I think he's not guilty because he killed them. The guilt is not about the killing of the civilians. He convoyed a guilt about it. So he's guilty about what he let himself suffer, uh, if we can say. Not about the others, but about uh, himself. Um, that's what I could actually feel from his emotions, from his face. Uh, and when he also confessed, he's kind of, yeah, I have done too much to myself. I, I have put myself under too much pressure. And he, he continued justifying why he took such a decision. Sounds more like self-pity. Exactly, exactly. And uh, don't forget, I think he was under influence of alcohol. So he was drinking and mm. uh, smoking. So when he talked, he was more transparent about his emotion than usually when we talked to him before or after that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did he do when he realized who you really were, that Anna was a fictitious online persona and that you were actually documenting his words and sometimes even videotaping him and that there was, you know, you had possession of that video of the massacre that <laughs> incriminates him? What was his reaction to all that? Um, Amjad is an intelligence guy, so he kept asking me. He wanted me to confess to him that I am not. And it's a strategy of interrogation. So he was, it sounds like a game of a little bit cat and mouse and smoke and mirrors. And you mean throughout the seven to eight months, he was shedding doubt on who Anna was? Yeah, specifically after we showed him the 16 seconds of the video. Oh, okay. Um, after, yeah. So we asked him, um, who, what are you doing here? Uh, what's going on in this video? He said, I'm, I'm just doing my work. And then he started kind of doubting and uh, more and more. I see. And then what happened when, you know, the cat was out of the bag, so to speak? And he, of course, by now he knows what has happened so what's been his reaction 
he kind of um, promised to kill everyone I love in life. Um, and he said they will be back from Holland, where I am. And it was the last uh, time we talked to him. And you haven't had any reaction from him since the publication of your research and the, uh, the publication of the videos? No, we are not in touch with him anymore. And is Anna's Facebook profile still still alive? No, no. Anna is dead. Not only dead, but she's also buried even. Buried, yes. Dead and buried. <laughs> tell us about that. Tell us about putting Anna to rest and the decision behind that and how you even did that. Well, so Anna was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, uh, we were unable to do any research without her. On the other hand, uh, it was also a burden, especially for Ansar, to uh, to crawl into the skin of a pro-regime person for over two years. Uh, so we realized at some point we had to uh, commit euthanasia um, and, and just kind of put her uh, to sleep, basically. Oh, my goodness. So, I mean, uh, you know, we live in the Netherlands. Uh, euthanasia is not illegal mm -hmm. in the Netherlands. So uh, we decided at some point, you know, um, with a conscious strategy, really, when we first created Anna, uh, it was 2018, I think, uh, we we did it out of necessity, because, you see, if the regime, if the Assad regime was uh, more transparent, if it was possible to travel to Damascus and to research uh, this government, this regime, this state, uh, then we wouldn't need to, you know, uh, rely on, on subterfuge and on kind of undercover ethnography we could just get on a flight, go to Damascus, and start asking questions. But because of the impossibility, uh, Anna was born out of necessity. And what, when we created her, um, like a type of Frankenstein monster, um, we we had a very conscious strategy. We said, let's start first with relatively uh, with easy things, as in trying to really infiltrate into pro-regime communities. Uh, and then second, from there on, to uh, to widen the scope of uh, her network, uh, to try to all the way in the end to do the impossible, which is uh, to interview uh, people who are in the Syrian intelligence agencies, uh, and that's basically exactly how it went. And by the time that we received the, this video, it was 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, um, and Anna already had a wide network of very trusted pro-regime credentials. Right, so when Mjet, you know, if Mjet would have scrolled through Anna's uh, friend list to see, you know, who was who was this girl in uh, cahoots with, then he would have been impressed. Um, and and so all the way towards the end, it was also good luck in many ways, it was, it was fortuitous uh, that uh, that Anna was already it was so was so ripe and was so well integrated into pro regime communities because Mjet trust, trusted her almost immediately. Uh, and once we had, uh, once we interviewed Amjad, we basically decided or said to each other, this is really the pinnacle of what one can do with the, with researching the regime. Nobody's ever done this before. Uh, there are no examples of people interviewing, uh, you know, active intelligence agents, officers. Um, and once we did it, we, you know, we closed the case. We realized, um, this was, um, I mean, you know, Anna had basically has had her best time uh we can't get anything more out of her so we just um we decided to terminate her sounds pretty violent did anna protest uh uh not really i think she must have been fed up also with her work because <laughs> she was talking to all these uh criminals couldn't have been nice for her either yeah, so 
Yeah. No, but we, you know, we know from, you know, psychologists, they will say that rituals are important, punctuated, transition, you know, turning points. So instead of just quitting and just turning off the, the Facebook uh, profile, uh, Ansar actually had the idea of creating a little uh, box, a box of memento, mementos. So we printed out uh, her Facebook uh, profile. Uh, we put in a couple of trinkets that were like pro-regime necklaces and things like this. Uh, we put it all in a large envelope, and then we, we got in the car, we drove the envelope to a nearby forest. We dug a hole and we chucked in the envelope, you know, literally with a, with a spade. Um, and then we, yeah, we put it in the hole, we covered it up, we held one minute of silence. And then we went back uh, home and had a cup of coffee. Did anyone see you? There was a guy walking his dog. And he must have thought it's kind of weird. And it was kind of a little bit rainy and two of these people kind of shifty and with a spade in their hand, you know, that's kind of uh, strange. Um, but yeah, I mean, it had to be done. So uh, it was done. What was the feeling after you did that? Especially you, Ansar. Um, to be honest, I felt a bit empty. I mean, usually I'm busy with uh, Anna uh, talking to Croasa people. Um, so at the beginning, I needed some time to think about Ansar and what I want to do <laughs> next. Um, yeah, I think it was tough, to be honest. And then uh, what about you? Or Well, when we buried uh, her, I actually, you can hear me because we recorded it. Uh, there's uh, video and audio of it. Oh. Uh, you hear me saying good riddance. Um, but actually, after a while, we we felt that we actually did something pretty unique, actually, with Anna. Uh, it's, you know, nobody had ever done this, uh, not in the elaborate way that we had done. So, uh, and I told Ansar after like a couple of weeks uh, that we almost started missing her. Not quite, but almost started missing her. Uh, and in, in a way, and that emptiness, I also felt that. But also after a while, I felt a kind of uh, a sense of uh, like euphoria. In fact, that this we actually pulled this off. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I can't believe that all these people were so they were so credulous and almost gullible in that they believed uh, somebody who uh, made a profile like this and. Uh, basically managed to gather lots of uh, information. But again, uh, I was born out of necessity. You know, if the regime was a normal state, then we could have done the research there, but unfortunately it wasn't possible. Mm-hmm. So that had to be done, and then the termination also had to be done. And when did you put Anna to rest? I think it was uh, in uh, January. Am I, uh, is that correct, Ansar? Yeah, in 16 January, I think. Of this year? Of this year, yeah. Okay, well, actually, that's not too long ago. So in many ways, both of you are still processing. Uh, we are. And uh, also when the story broke, of course, when we, when we published our essay in New Lines, uh, it was, of course, based on, on Anna's interviews. So we had a bit of a, a blast from the past. And we started remembering all the, all the people that Anna talked to. And actually, there's, there's a lot more information, but that will be for, uh, for the book uh, later. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to that. So how has it been then? I mean, it hasn't been that long at all. How would you say, especially you, Ansar, how have you met, but both of you really, how did you manage your mental health during all this time? And 
given that both of you are genocide experts and this is basically what you do professionally, how do you manage your mental health in general, but specifically also with this story? Um, I often ask for support from uh, a therapist and uh, we talk about the uh, Anna, the interviews and other issues, uh, traumatic experiences. Uh, I think um, talking to a specialist was very important to um, like to maintain this um, your uh, our sanity in, in a way. Plus, I think uh, we developed a sense of humor and I think we can talk about it more. So we often joke about something nobody can can grasp. So I think we also we have key words and um, you you have you have key words. We do kind of uh, some jokes about violence, or we can't actually uh, write or work on it. Or I think we can speak more about <laughs> black humor. Yeah, yeah. Tell us more about that. <laughs> What's going on there? No, <laughs> inside joke yeah, of sorts. Absolutely. I mean, you, if you if you at some point maybe somebody should um, really just look into or maybe research or publish the uh, the WhatsApp conversations that me and Ansar have entertained over the last three years. I think that it would be entirely inaccessible to uh, to a, a general audience because uh, you know what you know how do you cope when you are uh, have such a sense of isolation. Uh, not only about the topic itself. I mean, you know, when you study mass violence, that in itself is an isolating event. Mm -hmm. This is not, you know, dinner party conversation, light conversation over a, like a cocktail reception or something. Uh, trust me, I know from experience. Mm -hmm. um, but here there was an extra sense of isolation in that because of the sensitivity of this particular massacre is that we couldn't even share this with our colleagues. And, and normally your colleagues are your support network. You know, mm -hmm. uh, you go out for a drink sometimes, you know, you kind of, uh, you can vent to each other, they listen, they understand what you're going through. But this, this Talaman massacre was, uh, well, so we're so, we had to be so discreet about it. There was just the two of us, basically. And this sense of isolation, the only way that we manage this is really with satire and with dark humor. Uh, and there's a, you know, there are lots of examples that I can give. For example, that one time that we were in a cafe and then this guy walked in. And he looked just like Amjad. Oh, no. And I just looked at Ansar, and Ansar looked at me. And we looked at the guy, and we started, we started giggling. And the guy was just some random guy. I just, he looked at us like, what's wrong with these people? Why are they, you know, did I, like, do I have mayonnaise <laughs> on, my, on my cheek or something? What's going on here? So oh, no. something like that. Yeah. Or, I don't, nobody else would understand that, of course. Or at this, this one time, there was uh, and that's one, of the, uh, one of the hospitals of death in Syria, in Damascus, is a hospital 601, mm -hmm. right? This is a, is a hospital that's close to uh, the military airport where the Caesar photos were taken. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the Caesar photos of those emaciated, tortured to death. Yeah, the infamous uh, Caesar photos, right, that made it to the um, yeah International Tribunal. And they're on display at the Holocaust Museum here in D.C., actually. Yeah, carry on. Exactly. The... Uh, so at some point I was in, in Germany and I was traveling through the south of Germany and there was uh, there was a building and in front of the building there was a small sign and the sign said 601 uh, and I just I just burst out in laughter you know? and I sent Ansar a, a picture of that and she was like ah that's uh, you know uh, be careful she said uh, oh, no. this place might be dangerous 
So things like this, you know, this I know this is inaccessible humor, and for some people even it might sound inappropriate, but trust me, it's the only way you can uh, stay sane in this uh, misery. That helped both of you cope. Yes, it did. And we had also, we had like other jokes, like for example, at some point Ansar said that Anna was so well infiltrated into the regime that at some point, you know, Anna would have like an audience with Bashar al-Assad. She probably would, yeah. You know, why not? Absolutely. Maybe even she could have landed an interview on Syrian TV. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, if we, if we continue, who knows? Yeah. Let me ask you about the actual content of the video. I know you examined it for hours upon hours and for months, maybe hundreds or thousands of hours. And, of course, uh, you've seen a lot more than what's become public. I'm curious, what is your sense about what might have been going on inside the victims' minds as they were being led casually? To their death they they could hear the shots near them they could probably hear the people falling into the grave uh in front of them they were blindfolded obviously it's, but what do you think was going on in their mind i mean this is really uh probably the most hellish question that uh, one could ask uh, because uh, we needed a sense of empathy with the perpetrators to be able to get close to them to try to understand them, not immediately uh, condemn them, but to try to understand them and interview them. Like, why are they doing this? What is the context in which they operate? But the moment that we allowed ourselves to be, and we had to be very vigilant against it, to have too much empathy with the victims, that would have been really kind of morally devastating to us. Because you see these people in their last minutes, in their last seconds, um, and when you try to think about what must have gone through their minds, um, it's a profoundly difficult exercise because most of them die in silence, as we said. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few who clearly realized they were being executed. Some of the others might also have realized it, but then they might have been in shock or might have had like a vain hope that because they were totally innocent, uh, they might have been uh, incredulous. Like, why am I being executed? I'm innocent. Uh, but for some of these people, it was rather painful because they, uh, for example, one of the victims actually is thrown into the grave and then, and then Amjad misses him and he falls into the grave and then his, actually his, uh, his handcuffs, they actually, uh, they, they, they tear and they break or his hands are free. And then he tries to free his blindfold and right at that moment, Amjad shoots him. I mean, the guy lands on other people's bodies. So when he hears a shot, uh, you, you generally hear the shot before you realize that you're bleeding and that you're dying. So there must have been like a few seconds in which they realized, you know, I am being executed in this mass execution here. And that must have been an absolutely horrific feeling. And in a way, I actually, very personally, I feel, uh, sounds strange to say that, but almost um, not relieved, but... Um, yeah, maybe relieved actually that the people died quickly, you know, and that they weren't uh, that the suffering didn't didn't continue for uh, for ages. Um, but for the next person who was standing in line, you know, who just had to stand there and just listen to this other person uh, falling, being shot at, moaning, you know, clearly the next person knew the next person who was in line. And uh, in some of the other videos, you can also see people who are begging and beseeching Amjad, but he's, uh, he's unflappable. 
And so, do you have thoughts on that? I think the most difficult part was when Amjad killed a kid before his mother, I think. Uh, she was begging, don't take him. We didn't see the the shoot of the kid, but we later see the mother in the the, uh, the next video. We see Amjad killing her. Let's talk about the families and loved ones of the victims in the videos. Uh, I guess almost 300 civilians were killed in these videos that you that were leaked to you, and many of them were killed on camera. Sometimes we can see the face, the front of the face, but usually we see the back or the side of the victim before or after they've been shot. And it's, um, you know, probably very difficult to recognize a loved one without having to watch the very distressing clip over and over again, which is unimaginably hard to watch for anyone, not to mention someone trying to verify whether or not this was in fact, the final moment of their own loved one. Uh, so have all the victims been identified and their families notified? Uh, no, uh, they haven't. Uh, in fact, this was one of the uh, one of the dilemmas actually of the uh, of the aftermath of the the article and uh, there also the leaking of the video, namely, um, there are basically two camps. Uh, Two, uh, let's say, schools of thought. Uh, in, there's in one camp there are people who feel uh, it is it is ethical not to publish the videos, not to bring it out in the open, because to protect the dignity of the victims who are dying, who's being who are being killed in a horrible way. And if you have these images out there, and other people that were kind of they were cut it and and those that they're edited, um, you know, and and the images will be out there forever. And this undignified last moment of this victim will be out there forever. That's one camp who thinks it's ethical not to publish it. On the other hand, you have probably an equally large community uh, of Syrians, of uh, human rights uh, activists, uh, transitional justice people, who feel, no, it's actually very ethical to publish it. Uh, not only because it exposes the crimes of the regime, but also because the, it's the only way the family members can identify uh, their loved ones. So. And and I mean I personally feel a bit uh, conflicted between these two. I I see the validity of each argument, uh, but um, uh, apart from uh, the the video that we uh, you know that was analyzed in the Guardian and the one that leaked, uh, none of the other victims have been uh, identified. But there is now a mechanism uh, to for the family members to uh, to resort to, and that is to contact the uh, the German uh, police, there's an email address um, we're happy to share uh, of somebody in the German, German office uh, who the family members can contact and they can uh, probably go and make an appointment and watch a video if they suspect that one of their family members is uh, caught up in these massacres. Yeah, we'll share that on our website when we run the podcast. Um what impact has so far would you say has your investigation had on countries that have been saying that it's safe to return syrians back home countries like denmark for example has there been any impact at all i'm not yet aware of any uh, uh, concrete uh, 
like in, impact on like policy changes or something by, uh, for example, some European politicians or countries that feel that Syria is safe because the fighting is over. Uh, our argument actually is that it's the exact opposite argument. Because the fighting is over, the regime is firmly in charge again. And wherever the, the regime rules and governs, that's where the intelligence agencies are also uh, all over the place. So uh, actually the end of fighting only only denotes uh, a, a lack of security, not uh, the existence of security. So that's that's one thing. Um, maybe that uh, those changes will come. I'm not sure. There are also uh, arguments going uh, by mostly right-wing European uh, politicians that uh, yeah, this massacre was in 2013. I mean, we wouldn't send people back then, but now it's safe. Uh, mm. you know, now people can go back, but they don't realize that MJ is still there. There's thousands of MJs there, mm-hmm. uh, and the ruthlessness of the regime has not has not decreased. It has not even stayed the same. It's only increased. Uh, so that uh, is uh, really something that needs to be well needs to be the argument needs to be made. Uh, but the real impact has really among has been among uh, Syrian communities. I mean, we are really kind of flabbergasted with the profound impact that this uh, massacre made in uh, inside Syria. Apparently, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of people who have read the articles. Um, the profound re-traumatization, really, of communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that that we knew these things were happening, but to actually see it with this naked brutality, uh, plus the fact that uh, the perpetrators were identified and interviewed and even confessed, is really was a kind of watershed moment for a lot of Syrian communities. So a friend of mine, for example, a uh, young Syrian man who was arrested twice by two different intelligence agencies and was tortured, then fled to Germany. Uh, he called me like two, two days after uh, the article and the media attention, uh, and he said, uh, or he said, I made the mistake of watching the video because then he actually had a panic attack and they had to call an ambulance to take him to the hospital. So, um, and this is only one example, a large number of people all over social media, they said that this was deeply re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine what it must have felt like for the families of the victims, uh, you know, um, to which on each occasion we offer our condolences because that must have been really terrible. But the real impact is there. Uh, also, the impact is also inside Syria. Maybe Ansar can comment on that a bit. Mm-hmm. Tell us, Ansar. Um, inside Syria, I think we, I think uh, the major impact of this is that Syrians uh, believed again that their narratives is important, and they have to speak and they have to to share their stories. We saw waves of people posting and. Twitter, Facebook, their stories of the Syrian uh, intelligence and other violent apparatus. Uh, for Syrian inside, uh, we could see like there is empathy with the victims, uh, even uh, among uh, the uh, pro-Assad communities, and they express their disgust mm. uh, of what Amjad have done because they saw that the, the people who were, who were killed there were civilians and they were killed in cold blood. You could see actually in the video. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for the first time, uh, Syrians from different um, kind of uh, political affiliation 
expressed their refuse or they refused violence, saying we shouldn't accept such a behavior. Some of the intelligence families, uh, like families of intelligence operatives, they start asking their uh, members uh, like uh, if they have done the same. And uh, I think it's the first time we heard such a stories in Syria that did you do something like this? One of the guys uh, we interviewed for this project, and he is from Assad Pro Militia, his wife stopped talking to him. Wow. And uh, she said, did you do such a thing? And uh, even the guy didn't do it. And she said, you should, if you, you have done such a thing, I'll never talk to you. Wow. I think it's, uh, it's something in you that there is kind of agreement between Syrians that violence shouldn't be the language to speak with each other. It's in very low voices, but I think it's very important. And it tells us a lot about how the Syrian society inside have changed after experiencing years of violence. And um, that they are ready, I think, to, to talk about it and share their stories and experience and move on to a new era, I think. And that's even when I talk to pro-Assad communities in the Zahra neighborhood on Homs. Which is a very, very much a loyalist neighborhood. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, they said we were not part of it, but we couldn't stop what's going on. Mm -hmm. And they shared stories and experiences about these events, which were not known to us, actually. And uh, I think it's very important. As a Syrian, I'm talking here. It's a moment that we can't exclude the others narrative. Mm -hmm. the other side narratives, because we can't understand what's going on in Syria without them. This is a new start, I think. Yeah. Wow. Perhaps the beginning of a new reckoning. Yeah, hope so. Yeah. Well, on that note, Ur Angar and Ansar Shahoud, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You can read their investigation in New Lines magazine. Thank you.